Vicki Rubin was 24 years old and about to deliver her first child. She also had chickenpox at the same time. So begins the story of a first-time mom who learns her infant daughter has severe, multiple disabilities. Facing the challenges of caring for her daughter, the struggles in marriage, and the question of whether or not she should have more children, Vicki Rubin gives a glimpse into the world of her family and transformation while raising Jess. Vicki's interview is going to delight you and make you want to hear more. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Grant. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Vicki Rubin holds a master's degree in exceptional education from SUNY Buffalo State College and currently resides in Western New York. Prior to writing her book, Vicki was the director of the Early Childhood Direction Center and is experienced working with families of children with special needs and professionals and presenting workshops on various topics. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you, Carol, and thank you for having me. I have read and reread your story, and it's impactful, and that's such an overused word, but it definitely is, because it touches not only our hearts, as, as the audience is going to see in just a few moments, but also it's a challenge because you definitely are the poster girl for somebody who never ever gave up hope. And I am looking forward to dissecting your book and hearing your story and I know you will captivate this audience. So to start with, let's start at the beginning. What happened when you were pregnant? So um, I was 24 years old and Jessica is our first child. And I originally had this rash, and we kept trying to figure out, what, what, what is this rash? I go into labor, and it turns out that the rash was chickenpox that nobody was able to diagnose. And um, as soon as they found that out, they transferred, transferred me to Children's Hospital. And, um, and once I got to a, a Children's Hospital, they were able to take care of me and they weren't as freaked as the first hospital mm -hmm. for lack of a better word um jessica was born right on time she was uh not early 
but she was very small. She was under five pounds. Hmm. And um, I wasn't able to see her um, because I had the chicken pox. And so they put her in the neonative intensive care unit. And my husband at the time, because it was 1982, uh, took Polaroid uh, pictures of her because there weren't any cell phones back then. <laughs> and And at first, we didn't really know that Jessica had delays. But I had suspicions. And as time went on, I kept going to her pediatrician who kept telling me that maybe I had issues, but that she was fine. Oh, my goodness. I know. And then original and then eventually um, I'm from Long Island, New York. My mom said, come on down. Let's go to a hospital here. And we went to see a pediatric neurologist on Long Island and Jessica failed every milestone oh, and watching goodness. that sitting during that appointment was devastating but it was devastating and yet I was able it, it acknowledged my fears I knew there was something wrong I knew it and so mm-hmm. as much as I didn't want to hear it I also felt supported in hearing it and now I knew I can do something hmm. good attitude Jessica and I came back to Buffalo, New York, which is where my, you know, my husband was waiting. And originally when we went to get her evaluated, he and some family members were not on the same page. They, they didn't believe that Jessica was um, delayed. When we came back, we realized we needed to see some specialists in Buffalo, New York. And so we met with um, the developmental pediatrician at Children's Hospital. And then we started our journey of receiving services and trying to find a diagnosis. And the trying to find the diagnosis is something that took us 21 yeah. years. Oh, my. We had, Are you kidding? How is that had, possible? Well, our, our first pediatric developmental pediatric uh, pediatrician believed that Jessica looked a lot like his children and his children had creatishot which is a deletion in the fifth chromosome and so they they took Jessica's blood and for some reason still unknown to me they saw some deletion in that sample and so for huh. years they thought she had creatishot which is really called cry of the cat because all the children who have this Uh, deletion have that kind of cry. Jessica did not. So my husband Mitch and I started going to Creedushot national meetings and as soon as we got there we realized Jessica was different than everybody. Everyone else looked like they were cousins because they had a similar deletion and there was just a similarity but not with Jess. And so when she was about five there they took more blood tests and realized she did not have creatishot. But it wasn't until much later when they had more sophisticated tests that we were able to determine what she actually had. There, There's a key problem with not knowing. My husband and I wanted to have other children. And when we thought that she had her first diagnosis, Our we were tested genetically and we didn't have that deletion. So we felt, hey, this is fine. We can have more children. And we did, but we 
we later found out that it wasn't that deletion. And so it was kind of a risk because they didn't know what to check in, in our genes to mm -hmm. make sure that we didn't have what Jessica's actual diagnosis turned out to be. So how did you cope in those early years with what was going on, what you were observing as a mom, the what you just said about whether or not you should have more children? Was, were you coping with fear? Was, was there anxiety? Where were you? My way of coping was trying to fix things. Part of the problem was, I, I remember one specific example, and I'm going to just step back one second. Our house looked like it was a therapeutic model. Hmm. I had all kinds of posters on the walls of what we should do. We had equipment. And I remember one day I come in and my husband's sitting with Jessica watching a football game. And I thought to myself, but we're, we're losing time. We're not stimulating her. We're not working mm. with her. And he said to me, she's also our little girl. Yes. We need to sit on the couch and watch TV with her. But one of the reasons I, I had some of that concern was we did a controversial um, therapy called patterning. And it was controversial because of the amount of time that was required from families to do this work. It wasn't that it was hurtful to the child. And um, we, we did this therapy with Jessica. We did it five days a week. They usually required you to do it seven days a week. And I had 40 volunteers in our home oh twice a day. Goodness. And we were doing all kinds of therapy. So, so that was going on. Also, at the time, I had a lot of anxiety, and I developed a, a um, panic attacks. Uh, I used to go into the supermarket, and I would be standing on line waiting to pay for my food and feeling like I was going to have a heart attack or I wasn't going to be able to take my next breath. And it was, uh, it was so scary and so real. And I think part of it was I was just trying to juggle everything, fix everything, and and it became it became very difficult for me. And I didn't really show it to people. You know, I was always looking at mask. Yeah, this is easy. I can do this. Mm -hmm. And I could. I was able to do this, but I internally I was also having a lot of chaos. So let's just back up for a moment. In hindsight, would you have done things differently? That's a really good question. In hindsight, I'm not sure how much I would have done differently because I, I, I probably would have tried the patterning because there mm -hmm. was a hope that perhaps it would give Jessica a, a better chance of being able to um, not develop, although patterning said that you could develop normally basically what patterning is they they say a child with a disability in the womb doesn't make the right type of movements so that the and i'm not going to pronounce this say this exactly right but that the neurons you know going to the brain i probably would have still done patterning it took a lot from us as a family it was extremely time consuming 
and it did take away a lot of our flexibility, family time, but I think I still may have thought that there was hope and a chance that Jessica would develop some skills that we thought she was not going to develop without patterning. Also during this time, Jessica developed a seizure condition. I never was able to come to terms with the seizures. It always panicked me every time. And I tried so hard to be calm because you're supposed to be calm. And fortunately, my husband, he took on that role. He was so calm every time Jessica had a seizure and he would send me on errands, pack her bag, go get the medicine, write down this until the ambulance came so that I was busy taking care of things and he was able to remain calm for both of us. One of the things when we were patterning, they said to us, every day that you don't work on patterning is a day lost. They said that your child is developing slower. And so if you don't do everything you need to do every single day, that that delay will magnify. And I think that resonated with me. And now uh, as, as a parent and when I counsel other families, I, this is one of the things that I make sure that, that, that they don't believe. I make sure that families know that you, being with their child, giving them the everyday loving care that you would give a typical infant is, is key to all children. There, you shouldn't, there's, I shouldn't have been treating Jessica as if we were in school every day. I should have done more of the the sitting down mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. playfulness, mm-hmm. but I was very worried about losing moments and trying to get her to be what what somebody else decided was the best she could be. At this point in my life, that I would have done differently. But you don't beat yourself up for that, I hope, and there's no no guilt around that, I trust. There is not because we stopped patterning. And the thing that made me stop doing that was getting pregnant. So I think that was the only thing that was going to stop me from patterning. (laughs) How old was Jessica when you got pregnant? Jessica was two and a half when I had my son, our son, Alex, and she was five when I had Carly. And having Alex and Carly was the best medicine for Mm. not focusing 100% on all of Jessica's therapies. Mm -hmm. Then it became Mm -hmm. the three of them. And I think in our, in our world, we developed this philosophy. Things will take us longer, but we're going to do everything. And we're going to be that family that's out there at the baseball games. My husband was coach for our son and our daughter participated in soccer. And Jessica came to everything. And I, I think my, my, our philosophy, because my husband also just shifted from we have to try to fix Jessica to Jessica is Jessica and anything we can do for her, we're going to do for her, but she is who she is. And, and we all accept that and we love her for who she is. 
and and so does you know everyone around her. So I think it took us a couple of years to not to get to the point with love, but to get to the point where we could step back and say we're going to try to be as much as a typical family as we can. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back. I want to talk to you, first of all, about your book, of course, and the impact it has made. But I believe that there are thousands, um, hundreds of thousands of people who have experienced similar things in their families who will glean from this, from your story, from how you coped, how you handled it, And I know you've got some answers for us that you're going to save until the end. So, we'll be right back. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Today we are listening to Vicki Rubin's story. It has already touched me, and she's just beginning to tell the story about Jessica. So thank you again for sharing your story, Vicki. And now we're going to continue with several questions that I know my audience will have. And the first is, tell us how a young mom, You were 24 years old when you gave birth to Jessica. And the transformation that you had with no experience in this field to becoming a well-known regional advocate for families and children with special needs. This is where I know a great majority of my audience is going to relate with you. So share that, please. Thank you, Carol. It's interesting. In the field that I was, I was in, special education and working with families, I found that so many of the career people were touched in some way by having a, a, either a sibling with a disability, a child with a disability, or a relative with a disability. The, the impact that it has on families and individuals inspires people to help others. And I, I found this as a, a, a beautiful occurrence that I, I noticed many times, but I didn't know that at first. So I was 24. I went to the University of Miami for undergrad and I got my undergrad degree in elementary education and early childhood. And one of the professors said to me, would you be interested in going on and going into special education? And I remember saying to them, I don't think I have the patience for that. Well, that, uh, that changed. <laughs> and <laughs> after I had Jessica, I was still as a, a new mom. And, but I was, I was learning a lot about Jess. And 
I wanted to become the best advocate for Jessica that I could be. So I decided mm-hmm. to get my master's in special education. And it took me 10 years. I took one class each semester because I had three children. And at the end of 10 years, I not only graduated, but I graduated as the um, with the presidential award for a graduate student, one of the top graduate student. So it was, I had my heart and soul into learning about special education and what I can do to help others. Originally, as I said, I went into the field so I could learn more to help Jessica. But then I was very very fortunate to get a position in the Early Childhood Direction Center as a parent educator. And so I started educating other families about the state regulations and everything they need to know to navigate the special education system for their child and also to work parent to parent to, to, I already had experience as Jessica's mom and most of the families I worked with had younger children or newborns. I even had families call me who knew from an aminocentesis that they were going to have a child, um, one person Uh with Down syndrome. And we spoke a lot about what she should expect. But one thing I always wanted to give to families is that feeling of hope because Jessica and has changed my life. And when we talk about transformation, when I was 24 years old, my interests were were very different. I was very interested <laughs> in, you know, fashion, which is fine. And, and I, I didn't have the interest of, the bigger interest of helping others at that time. Having Jessica just changed who I was, or maybe, maybe part of me was like that and it blossomed, but I didn't know that part of me then getting my master's in special education, working in the early childhood direction center and becoming, eventually I became the director of of that department. And um, we worked with families in six counties of Western New York doing all of that. I became a well-known advocate, regional advocate for families. And so I don't think any of this would have happened had I not had Jessica. So I thank her all the time for this. I also thank her because I, because of her, I became an author. And that was my next question. Tell (laughs) us about your book and how it has resonated with families. So my mom all the time said, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I was, as I just said, working really hard on on uh, working at the Early Childhood Direction Center, and I had three children. I was like, I don't have time to write a book. But then I retired, and I started writing this book about the same time my mom developed Alzheimer's. Mm. And I started, I wrote each chapter. I would send it to my husband and my son, and once we edited it, I sent Mm -hmm. the raw chapter to my dad, who read every single chapter to my mom. Um, we knew that she had to hear the whole book before before she passed away. And she, she passed away in February 2020, right yeah. before COVID. The, this book has resonated with other families. I get 
um, a lot of feedback from um, uh, other parents. Uh, one parent said she had a daughter with a similar deletion as Jessica, and she said hearing ra about raising Jessica and sharing that in a positive light made her feel a sense of normalcy in her life, and she knows that others have gone through it. One of the comments that I really loved was from a grandfather, and his granddaughter has the same deletion as Jessica, and he bought the book for himself and his daughter. Oh. And, and he, said, he said to me that um, his daughter and he read the book at the same time, and he said, we found we were constantly laughing and comparing stories and being amazed at the similarities in their lives. And he said it opened up conversations between him and his daughter, allowing them to share feelings that they never had shared together. So that <clears throat> really helped me. I've also heard from teachers and therapists to, you know, it it gives the parent perspective. So mm -hmm. doctors and mm -hmm. teachers and nurses and therapists who work with families of children with disabilities, this is hearing a family perspective and what it feels like to be dismissed by physicians and what it feels right. like to be treat, treated as a team member with teachers. And when you're treated as a team member, it, you have the best outcome for the child because everyone is on the same page treating each other with respect. So that's a huge, important, important message in in the book. I've also had a lot of families read the book who don't have a child with a disability. And one parent, one person, she made me laugh. She goes, I'm fighting with my eyes because it's one in the morning and my eyes want to go to sleep, but I can't stop reading the book. But, but she said it just... It just gave her perspective of a family, something that she had no experience with. Does a book tell more than your story, or is it strictly your story? Oh, the book tells way more than my story. Okay. It, it, tell us a it, little bit about that. In the book, I interviewed Jessica's siblings, and that was quite wow. the that was quite the experience. So, you, you know, when you work in a big corporation and you decide, it, you know, you're moving on, you're leaving and you have that exit interview. Well, I decided I was going to do that exit interview with the siblings and my son and daughter and goes, hey, so how'd we do? How, how was it? Oh, how was it goodness. growing up with us? Yes, yes. <laughs> I suggest doing this. Every family should do this. It was enlightening. Um, with my with my son, we did a face to face for about a half hour. You know, we just talked, and he gave me all kinds of 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 comments about growing up with Jessica. Mm -hmm. But one of the last questions I asked him, he said, "If somebody were to ask you today." who doesn't know your family, who doesn't know Jessica and all the needs that she has and doesn't know about the wheelchair and, and everything else. What, you know, and they said, Oh, tell me about Jessica. What would you say? He said, oh. I would say she's my sister. And oh. that's one of the chapters of my book because that was the first thing that came to his mind. It wasn't, yes, yes. she has a disability. She needs assistance with all daily life skills. She's my sister. My daughter, she was harder to interview because I think she was a little more nervous. So she went mm. on the treadmill and I sat 
on the side and we had a great conversation and we just talked about what her life was like as part of as Jessica's sibling. So a lot and I, I don't want to really give it away because I, I do want to say that it was extremely interesting because as the kids were growing up, I know especially some relatives were thinking, oh, is there life mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. so different? Is it ruined? And it, it it's a very hopeful, beautiful interview. I also interviewed the grandparents, uh, Jessica's grandparents, because with grandparents, there's a feeling of double grief. Yes, you're not only yes. grieving for your child, but then you're also grieving for your grandchild and your child. And that's also a, a different perspective. And I have the the um, the results of that information. And my father especially touched my heart when he said, looking back, he felt like he didn't live up to what he thought he should have been doing, that maybe he should have spent more time. And I'm so glad we had that conversation because he did live up to what he was doing and how, mm. he, how they helped me in their way was so important to us and so i'm glad we were able to have that conversation and what about the impact that both jessica and your family has had on your community so we had a friend who lived in western new york and they moved to california their son was you know knew jessica grew up with jessica and when he moved to california he met a a a young son, a child the same age as he, and who had Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. And the child needed a lot of support. He was in a wheelchair, needed a lot of help. And when my friend said to her son, oh, you know, how how did you become friends? The son said, I knew Jessica. Jessica was in a wheelchair. And I knew how wonderful Jessica was, and I wasn't afraid of meeting somebody oh else in a wheelchair. Oh. And this was in the 1980s. It, inclusion mm-hmm. wasn't as big as it is now. That's like right. now, you probably wouldn't hear that story, but that that was one story. In our in our community, Jessica, because she went, she was included in a typical middle school. People in our community learned who Jessica was, the kids in school, instead of wondering who was that person, I would walk in a uh-huh. store and they'd say, oh, I know Jessica. She goes to my oh, school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, th- that that was incredible. I know that I mentioned before that I we had said to our children, we're going to do everything. We're just going, it might just take longer. So in doing that, in our community, Jessica was at every religious event, every baseball game, all the soccer games, all the school events. Our kids were in high school plays in the orchestra. She was at every event. And so the community saw Jessica as Alex and Carly's sister, our <laughs> daughter. And and she became so well known in the community. And because she is just such a, a ray of sunshine, 
she draws people to her. So she's become well-known in our community. I, there are times I'm walking and people are saying, hi, Jessica, and they don't know who I am, but they know Jess. Aww. So she really, she has a, a, a beautiful gift. I always say for somebody who needs to have so much help, is so dependent on others, having the gift of a gregarious, well, she doesn't use language, but such an engaging personality really is very helpful. <laughs> now, when you said she doesn't use language, can she speak? So Jessica does not speak any words other than I do hear an occasional ma, 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 which, which warms my heart. <laughs> she didn't start saying that till she was probably 12 or 13. When Jessica was young and we were, and she was in school, we started using another unique therapy called facilitated communication. So when we were doing facilitated communication and the details are in the, in the book, Raising Jess, the Story of Hope, when you hear about all the details and how we determined if, if facilitated communication was working with Jessica, at the same time, we realized that Jessica does not need words to communicate. <laughs> does Jessica like chocolate milk? We know that, but she can't speak. We know that because when chocolate milk is in front of her, she claps her hands. Does Jessica love being hugged? She doesn't tell us she loves being hugged, but she puts her arms out and she grabs you because she wants the hug. Does Jessica, is Jessica happy to see you? When you see Jessica's face brighten, when you see her, she's telling you, I'm happy to see you. And there are so many uh, photos in the book that at the end of each chapter just oh, has photos great. that coincide with the chapter. So in terms of words, Jessica does not communicate using words, but Jessica does communicate. You just have to be able to read her code. It's taking the time, isn't it? A lot of people don't don't communicate with one another, no matter how educated they are or you know what what type of life they have. Right? It's taking it, the time to listen and to communicate. It is taking the time, and there's a mistake that a lot of people uh, make is that they think when someone is not speaking that they don't understand <laughs> and then they start talking above their head mm -hmm. or they not I mean I mean literally like they talk to the person who's standing beside them or they talk to the parent and they don't engage and I find that extremely disrespectful so when we were at a doctor and they weren't talking to Jessica <laughs> I would say uh, you know please look at Jessica when you're talking about Jessica, because you can't make assumptions of what people are understanding just because they can't speak to you. And, and yes, you need to take the time to see how, how everyone communicates. There's so much with nonverbal communication and it's a whole other language and everyone should be able to read that type of uh, of language because in everyday communication with your friends, with your family, people are giving non-verbal cues and it's, it's always helpful to understand that and take the time to listen, but not to the words. <laughs> One of the things that I'm hearing as you're talking is not only are you an educated woman, but you have also been educated in the cliche 
the School of Hard Knocks, but even above and beyond that, the education in communication. And you would probably not have had the diploma, <laughs> the degree, without having Jessica in your life. So you learned things that you never would have had the opportunity to learn. And you can take that and share that on so many different levels. I mean, we could easily make this a three-part podcast because there are so many other questions that I have and I'm sure the audience has and that is why we are we want the audience to buy the book so first of all repeat the name again where it where you, uh, the audience can get it and in closing any words of encouragement inspiration whatever term you want to put on it and give us a little summary uh, the book is called Raising Jess, A Story of Hope by Vicki Rubin. It is, it's pretty much everywhere online, but it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble. And if you just Google the name Raising Jess, A Story of Hope, it will come up. The book is about, it's about a family changed forever by a, mm. the birth of a child with disabilities. It touches on motherhood, on marriage on the sibling and grandparent perspective and survival when faced with adversity. But what it gives families, and I, I've heard this from, from families and people who have read the book, it gives a sense of hope. It gives the hope that that your your life, it's a different path than you expected. It's not a bad path. It's not the negative path. It's a different path. And I think if people can shift their perspective to say, okay, this is not what I planned. This is not what I had written down for my future. And just say, I have a different journey. And and this journey is equally beautiful. It's just different. There, there's a, an essay called Welcome to Holland. And I, I don't, Carol, have you ever heard of that essay? No, I have not. So a lot of families, when they have a child with a disability, they're, they're, people suggest reading Welcome to Holland. And I'll give the, the, the two-second synopsis. It's basically you're planning this beautiful trip to Italy. You get on the... You, you get on the plane and you have all your notes. You know where you're going. You've got everything in your suitcase and you're going to Italy. And you get on the plane and you land and the pilot says, welcome to Holland. And you're like, welcome to Holland? I don't know anything about Holland. I, I wasn't planning for Holland. I don't, yeah. I, what am I doing here? I was planning for Italy. And so you get off. And you start looking around Holland and you notice all the beautiful flowers and you notice how, you know, the quaint little towns and you see Holland. It's not Italy, Italy, but it's a beautiful. It's Holland. So it's not where you expect it to go, but that doesn't mean it's not a beautiful journey. And then you come home. And all your friends who've been to Italy say, oh, it was wonderful. It, you know, we did this. We did that. And you think to yourself, okay, I, I didn't go to Italy. I didn't have the same experience experience as them, but I went to Holland and I had my own beautiful experience <laughs> and I'm cherishing that. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> that is an incredible summary. And one, you painted a word picture. 
and I love word pictures. One final question I have for you, and that is the diagnosis. You never really shared that. <laughs> so we were really fortunate. Our neighbor is a geneticist, and she came over and said to me, there is a very new uh, diagnostic test for deletions. And Jessica has a chromosome deletion, but we never knew what it was. And she said, I want to try this on Jessica. It's a simple blood test. And at that point in our area, in our region, they hadn't had one of them that had worked, that had come up positive. And so we did the blood test. And Jessica was the first positive result in our in our region. And they she did have a deletion. And her deletion was in her first chromosome. And it's called 1Q4344, which means first chromosome. Q is the long arm of the chromosome. And 4344 is where the, the little material is missing. So if you think of a candy cane with the red and white okay, stripe, right. maybe one of the red the red stripes are pulled out and then you put the candy cane back together. So it's like a stick. You pull out a little band of that stick and put it back together. And and that piece, it's submicroscopic, but it 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 has a huge impact on developmental skills of an individual. And the cool thing about this was a few things. One, my husband and I were able to be tested so that we were, and we do not, we were not a carrier of this deletion. Okay. So our children, our other children were not, were as likely to have a child like Jessica as anyone in, in the, in the world. It wasn't, it, it wasn't due to genetics. It was something hmm. that just hmm. sporadically happened. The other thing is I met a whole group of people who have this rare diagnosis. This is a very rare diagnosis. And we're part of a couple of groups. One is NORD, and it's the National Organization for Rare Disease. And the other one is UNIQUE, and they're out of uh, the UK. And it's also for people with rare diseases. Even though this isn't a disease, it's a rare diagnosis. And there are our groups were online that Jessica is the oldest one in the group that I belong to. So I'm like the old woman in the shoe who's always <laughs> handing out. <laughs> what did you do when this and what did you do with that? And, and I, I, re I, I try to make myself feel better about being that Jessica is the oldest one in the group with two, two reasons. One, I don't think a lot of people Jessica's age, a lot of families were still looking for answers mm -hmm, and maybe mm -hmm. they didn't have a geneticist neighbor who said, hey, let's try this. No so kidding. there's probably a lot of people Jessica's age, they just don't, who have this, but they don't know it. And two, if they did, maybe a lot of them aren't on Facebook, you know, joining a group, exactly. which, which yeah. I did yeah, <laughs> at yeah, my age. Yeah. So, um, so, but it's. It, it is a wonderful group, and that group has been very supportive. And Jessica is 40 now, correct? She is. Amazing. She just turned Absolutely 40. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> well, we are definitely running out of time. And I, as I said earlier uh, in the show, we easily could have talked more. So what I'm 
going to propose is that you come back at some point in maybe the next year or so. Let's pick up uh, the rest of the story. And also, I encourage, please go out and get Vicki's book, Raising Jessica, A Story of Hope. It is one of the best stories of hope that I have heard on this show in eight years. And the reason I say that is because it's an ongoing story. It's not something that happened in the past and now we have moved forward. You are living that story. You are living that hope. And that is the part I believe that is going to really touch people in particular who are dealing with some of these things that you are dealing with in the area of raising children such as Jessica. So I thank you, Vicki, for sharing from your heart. I thank you for educating us in many areas that I know as you were talking, I kept going, hmm, hmm, you know, <laughs> and it, it was a learning experience. And thank you. Thank you, thank you for sharing from your heart today on Never Ever Give Up Hope. Carol, I want to thank you. When I first got the invitation and I saw the name of your podcast, I thought, okay, this was meant to be. And now after talking <laughs> to you, I feel like you and I were meant to be to have this conversation. And, and I, I think that your podcasts really help and provide hope to everyone and you know there's so much going on in the world now and and any any one of us that can provide some hope to others we, we just all need to to mm -hmm, take that in mm -hmm. so I want to thank you very much I appreciate the interview Ah, thank you again <laughs> thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring Carol Graham did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.